Good morning, guys. We're going to be in the book of Genesis uh, this morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Genesis. So uh, if you got a Bible with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 21. Uh, go ahead and start turning there. Uh, we're going to read the text here in a second. But before we do, uh, I want to help set some context for us. So if you'll recall from last week, uh, we were introduced to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. God called uh, Abram to leave uh, the land of Ur, and he said, go to a, the land that I will show you. He made a covenant that he was going to make him into a great nation, uh, that he was going to give him the land of Canaan to possess, uh, and then he'd give him descendants as numerous as the stars. And so uh, Abraham, uh, excuse me, Abram at the time, and his wife Sarai, they obey uh, God, and they go. And he was 75 years old at the time that they leave um, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he is at, uh, childless, uh, 75 years old, and living in tents. He's still wandering around. And by the time that we get to Genesis chapter 17, it's been 24 years since God called uh, Abram out of his homeland. Abram is now 99 years old. Uh, he is still childless, uh, and he is still yet to possess the land. And so at the beginning of chapter 17, though, uh, God once again approaches Abram. And again, God doesn't even just double down on his promise to him. He triples down. This is now uh, the third time that God has come to Abram and promised him, made a covenant with him that he is going to give him descendants. So uh, in verses four to five of chapter 17, God uh, approaches Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars. And he actually renames Abram from Abram to Abraham, which means a father of, mul- of a multitude. So God like really triples down here and says, not only do I promise that I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars, 99-year-old man with a 90-year-old wife, but I'm just going to go ahead and give you a new name. Your name is now Father of Multitudes. So, I mean, in a sense, like all the chips are being shoved in now. And God is, you know, not only did we see last week how God swore a covenant with Abraham and said, I swear by my own holy name that I'm going to do this. He again uh, returns and reaffirms his promise to him. And then about 10 verses later in chapter 17, not only does God give Abraham a new name, but he also gives Sarai a new name. He tells uh, Abraham in verse 15, he says, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And so God renames Sarai to Sarah, which means princess. And God says, there are going to, there's going to be a royal lineage that is going to come from your line, Abraham. And Sarah is going to bear this child. It's not going to be Hagar, uh, your second wife, you know, Sarah. So we kind of skipped over that a little bit. But in chapter 16, we'll talk about it later. Uh, Abraham and Sarah concoct this plan to try to help God keep his promise. And so Abraham takes Hagar, Sarah's uh, servant, uh, as his second wife, and they have a, a son, Ishmael. God says, nope, it's not going to be Ishmael who's going to be the descendant. Sarah is going to bear you a child. And Abraham's response to this in verse 17 is it says he fell on his face and he laughed. Uh, not a laugh of, of mockery 
but really kind of a laughter of disbelief. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, how in the world is this possible? Like, I'm 99 years old. Sarah is way past her childbearing years. She is 90 years old. And so God's response, when Abraham falls on his face and laughs, what does God say? In verse 19, Genesis 17, 19, God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, what's super ironic about this? The name Isaac means he laughs. So essentially, God looks at Abraham and he says, if you think it's laughable that I am able to do this, we'll see who's laughing a year from now. God says, I, I, you're, not only are you going to have a son, but you're going to name him He Laughs so that you never forget that I am the God that is able to do the laughable. I am the God who's able to do the impossible. And so that kind of leads us up to Genesis chapter 21. That sets the table. We're kind of at the climax of this story. And really, all of Genesis chapter 12, all the way through 24, that unit kind of covers the life and times of Abraham. And uh, it's the, the main plot, the main drama of chapters 12 to 24 is God's promise to give Abraham a descendant. Right, so God's promise to make Abraham uh, descendants as numerous as the stars. And God promises that this uh, child of promise is going to be a blessing to all the nations. So God's very promise, going all the way back to Genesis 3, where he promised that the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, would crush the serpent's head. God has now, uh, we've, we've zoomed in on Abraham and his family. God has chosen Abraham, and he said this child of promise is going to come through the line of Abraham. And so this promise is writing, uh, or, or this God's whole plan of salvation is writing on uh, will he and can he keep his promise to Abraham? I mean, God uh, has based his promise on a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. What's going to happen? And that's kind of the tension that we're at here in Genesis 21. So let's read Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. Here's what it says. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for... It's this powerful message that's contained here. I thank you so much uh, for what we learn about you here in this passage. I pray that you would teach us this morning, God. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. God, help us to see how good you are. Help us to see that you are the promise-keeping God this morning. God, I pray that you would encourage your, your church, that you would encourage your people and build them up. 
God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, who's not born again, that today as they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would open their eyes, that you would grant them the gift of faith, and that today they would um, step into a new relationship with you and become a new creation. And I pray that you would help me to preach, help me to rightly divide the word of truth, because apart from you, God, I can do nothing. Um, So please come and help me, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, if I could summarize kind of the main point of this passage and really the sermon in one sentence, I would say, uh, first of all, that it's really clear. Uh, And secondly, the way that I would put it is, God is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. God is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. And I mean, that just, uh, that becomes very evident in the first two verses of this text. We see repeated over and over again, actually three times in the first two verses, there's this emphasis on God doing what he said he was going to do. Just look at this again. It says, uh, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised at the time of which God had spoken. So like three times right there, as he had said, as he had promised, at the time of which God had spoken. We're told over and over and over again that God does what he says he's going to do. God is a promise-keeping God. And Abraham, in obedience to God, names his son Isaac as a reminder that God does the laughably impossible. Not only does God keep his promises, there's nothing too difficult for God. We need this reminder, especially during moments in history like the one we find ourselves in right now. We're in the midst of national suffering. Many people are anxious about their health or their finances, whether it's for themselves or for others. We're unable to gather together as a church right now. Many are lonely. Many are longing to gather together as a church again, and it's easy to get discouraged In times like these, it's easy to take our eyes off of the promises of God and to maybe even call into question uh, whether or not the promises of God are in jeopardy. It's during times like these that questions can come into our minds. Will God really keep his promise? Why is it taking so long? How could the way things are going right now possibly be a part of God's will? Have you ever asked questions like that? The most helpful thing we can do during a time like this, and really any time, is to fix our eyes on the promise-keeping God and learn more about who He is. So what I want to do uh, with our time together is I want to show you four characteristics of our promise-keeping God uh, here from this passage and and from the overall narrative uh, of Genesis uh, 15 to 21 where God keeps His promise. Uh, to make, give Abraham a son. So uh, the first thing, uh, the first characteristic is that God keeps his promises despite the impossibility of the circumstances. God keeps his promises despite the impossibility of the circumstances. So Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah was 90 and past the age of childbearing. And so the idea that Sarah could conceive and have children seemed so implausible to both Abraham and Sarah that they laughed out loud uh, at the thought of it, even when God told them that they were going to have a child. 
And so God's response in, in Genesis 18, uh, we didn't have a chance to read over that part, but uh, again, the Lord uh, comes and tells Abraham that um, about this time next year, I'm going to return and you're going to have a son. And uh, Sarah laughs and God responds and says, is anything impossible for me? And he, and then, and God told Abraham in Genesis 17, you know, you're going to name your child Isaac. He laughs. God wanted Abraham and Sarah and their descendants to remember forever that nothing is impossible for him and that he always keeps his promises. Uh, This made me uh, uh, think about the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, Judges 6 to 8, as I was preparing the sermon this week. Uh, So Gideon was one of the judges that God raised up for Israel after they had entered into the promised land, but Israel continued to rebel against the Lord. And so God would, you know, hand them over to their enemies and then Israel would cry out to God and God would uh, have compassion on them and raise up a judge, a deliverer for them to deliver them out of the hands of the enemy. And so the Israelites were being oppressed by the Amalekites at this time. Uh, They were facing a vast horde. Uh, uh, The book of Judges says uh, the Amalekites were as the sand on the seashore in abundance. So this was a a massive army. And uh, Gideon and the rest of the Israelites were literally, uh, they were hiding their crops in holes in the ground because the Amalekites were coming and raiding their villages and their crops and they were terrified. And God raises up Gideon uh, and and says, Gideon, I'm going to use you to overthrow the Amalekites. And what ends up happening is Gideon starts out with an army of 32,000 and God makes Gideon and, and tells Gideon to cut the army down to 300 men and tells Gideon, I, uh, you know, 32,000 is too many for me because then you guys might take credit when I hand your enemy over to your hands. And so I want you to whittle this army down to 300 men and he sends Gideon and 300 men to attack this vast horde of Amalekites armed with trumpets and torches, and that's it. And they ultimately attack the Amalekites. They rout them. Uh, God gives them into the hands of Israel. Well, why did God do this? Why did God, you know, send uh, Israel uh, and Gideon in to fight the Amalekites with such a small army of 300 men? It's because God wants everyone to know that He is a promise-keeping God, and that nothing is impossible for Him. Circumstances do not concern God. In fact, God will intentionally put his people into circumstances that are impossible so that we may learn to rely upon him and so that he gets the glory. So God keeps his promises despite the impossibility of the circumstances. And God keeps his promises despite the impracticality of the timing. You know, God called Abraham out of his homeland when he was 75 years old. And by the time we get to Genesis 17, it's been a quarter of a century. The more time went on, the more impossible the fulfillment of the promise seemed. I mean, the older Abraham and Sarah got, the less likely it got that they were going to be able to conceive and to have a child. Have you ever had to wait a long time for something that you really wanted? Maybe something you've been praying for. Maybe it's a a spouse and you've been longing to get married. Maybe you're praying for children um, or finding a job or healing for your body or an end to a pandemic and a lockdown. Uh, We, uh, Jen and I, you know, you guys know, a lot of you know that we're in the process of adoption. 
And because of the pandemic, there have been some delays and some uh, unknowns that have now been you know, presented to us in our adoption process. And so in my world, a delay doesn't make sense. Uh, it's hard for me to see how that fits into God's plan. It's difficult for me to accept that that's a part of God's plan. I mean, how, how could that be a good thing? Right? Hasn't God called us to adopt? Like, does it, isn't this what he wants for us? And so it's easy for, for questions like that to run through our minds when, um, when delays in timing get introduced and when God asks us to wait. They can oftentimes be difficult waits. But what we need to remember when we must wait is, first of all, that God knows what we don't know. He's God and we're not. I love... Uh, what John Piper uh, says, he says, God is always doing uh, 10,000 things in our lives, and we might be aware of three of them. There are uh, a myriad of purposes for why God is doing what he's doing uh, in our lives. And secondly, it's important for us to remember while we wait that the universe revolves around God and not you or me. God's purposes are bigger than your own gratification. Just think about it for a minute. If God's promise was to give Abraham and Sarah a son and make him into a great nation, why didn't he just do it? Like, why did God drag this on? What was the point of waiting a quarter of a century and waiting until literally like it seemed like it was impossible? Like, why didn't God just keep his promise and save all the drama? Because the main point isn't just the fulfillment of Abraham and Sarah's desires, although that's not unimportant to God. God does care about our desires. God waited to fulfill the promise until it was impossible because his priorities are different than ours. And more than anything, God wants us to know him. He wants us to trust him because there is no gift that God could give us greater than the gift of himself. He loves you so much, he'll do whatever it takes to teach you that. Because God knows that he is better and more satisfying for you than marriage or children or getting into that career field you really want or being healed of an ailment or getting out of quarantine and lockdown. By extending Abraham and Sarah's wait until the situation was impossible, God taught them that he is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. And there was no way that they could take an ounce of credit for it. God brought about this miracle by his own hand. And it's important for believers to remember, too, that our hope isn't in this world. God has given us many precious promises, and we'll talk about some of them soon. But the fulfillment of these promises isn't always on this side of eternity. God has promised to make all things new, including our bodies. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, if we're in Christ, we too will rise from the dead. We'll have new resurrection bodies. And sometimes we pray for healing now. We pray for his physical healing now, and God answers, and he will heal now. But other times we pray for physical healing now and God does not give us physical healing right now. That's because the kingdom of God is already here and it's not yet here. 
So Jesus did miracles as a foretaste, as a sign that the king of the kingdom had arrived. It's, it's a, uh, whenever a, a miracle happens, it's kind of like a breaking in. It's kind of like a, a preview, if you will, of this is what all of creation is going to look like. Everything's going to be restored. Everything's going to be made new. Jesus healed many people when he walked on the earth, but he didn't heal everybody, right? That was not the point. The point was to announce the arrival of the king of the kingdom of God. But when Jesus comes back again, there is going to be an absolute and complete and total healing. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more disease, no more, de- no more demonic possession. All of that stuff, all sin, all results of sin will be crushed by Jesus and cast into the lake of fire and creation will be made new. We will have new healed resurrected bodies. But that's not going to happen until Christ's return. And the wait may be difficult for many of us at times, especially if you're dealing with a difficult ailment. It may be tough to wait at times. It's not easy to wait. But friends, our suffering increases our longing for Jesus's return. And that's really the main point. The main point is not to get your healing or to get what you want from God. The main point is to get God. And there are many times that God has a good purpose to allow us to prolong the wait. It was There were many painful days for Abraham and Sarah as they waited for this child of promise to arrive. Many days where they wondered if it was going to happen, but they clung tightly to God, to the God who they knew kept his promises. So our wait causes us to cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we long for his return to make all things new. So don't, don't listen to these There's a lot of teachers out there running around who tell you to claim your healing or that it's God's will. It's always God's will for you to be healed right now. You just have to have enough faith. That's based on a very distorted understanding of the kingdom of God. It's misguided and it's not true. It's not true. Uh, There is healing coming and it's coming when Jesus returns. Uh, It's okay to pray for healing right now, uh, but ultimately, uh, like Jesus in Gethsemane, we must submit to the Father and say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. God keeps his promises despite the impracticality of the timing, but he will keep those promises. Uh, Third, God keeps his promises despite the impotence of the vessel. God keeps his promises despite the impotence of the vessel. So that word impotence, what does that mean? It means powerlessness. And who's the vessel? That's us. It's God's people. Abraham and Sarah were powerless to bring about God's promise. Now, does that mean they didn't try? No. Unfortunately, they did try. Like we were talking about earlier, Sarah gave Abraham Hagar as a second wife to give God a hand in keeping his promise. They thought that maybe God forgot or maybe God was just busy and he needed them to give a helping hand. But God does not need us to help him. In fact, God delights in choosing and working through weak vessels who don't have anything to contribute. God doesn't qualify God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. This is really one of the themes of the book of 2 Corinthians, which 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite uh, books in the Bible. This, this idea uh, that God uses weak vessels. Um, 
I just want to read you a few verses from 2 Corinthians to give you an idea of how this is laced all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1-9, Paul says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Or chapter 4, verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, A thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you ever feel inadequate or unqualified to be used by God? That's actually a really great place to be because God chooses the weak to shame the strong and he chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Paul wrote uh, to, in, he wrote to the same church, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, not many of you were considered wise in the world's eyes when God called you. Super flattering, right? Paul's like, you guys aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Remember that, okay? God didn't like choose you because he thought you were awesome. But that's actually really good news for us because it tells us that God delights in choosing those uh, who can't help themselves. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, God helps those uh, who help themselves. That's baloney. In fact, it's the, quite the opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps the helpless. God helps those who recognize they can't help themselves and who cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, apart from you, I can do nothing. I need you. And he writes to the Corinthians and he says, that's you guys. Remember that? You guys didn't have it all together when God called you. I mean, just this is the nature of the kingdom of God. Just think about Jesus, our Savior. He came humble and lowly. His appearance was not impressive. And God's plan was for Jesus to reconcile sinners by dying a criminal's death, naked and mocked and ashamed on a cross. I'm convinced that the weakness of our current position as a church being unable to gather together, um, being apart. I'm convinced that this is actually one of the best things that could have happened to us and to the church at large in America. Now God can really use us because everything has been stripped from us except prayer. We're weak. There's no outreach events, no programs, no buildings. We really, like, this is one of the, uh, this seems like the least likely time to see a powerful move of God. Just like 99 years old is the least likely time to have your firstborn son. But God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God has used the weakness of my lifelong battle with depression to make me more dependent on him, to make me more prayerful to make me more desperate. And although at times it's, it's difficult, um, and, and I have, you know, there have been periods where I've pleaded with God to remove that thorn in the flesh, so to speak, I can see how God has used it in my life to keep me dependent on Him, to keep me clinging to Him. 
I'm constantly aware of my need for God's grace and strength. And it's only because of my weakness that I'm able to be effective in serving God at all. God can take the weakness of our five little loaves and our two little fish and he can multiply it. And he can use it in ways that we could have never thought possible. Don't despise your weakness, whatever it is. Uh, boast in it. And, and, and again, like don't just bear it. Don't just grin and bear it either. Don't just say, well, you know, this weakness is, uh, you know, uh, something I really hate and, I, and I'm going to have a bad attitude about it, but I'm, you know, I'll try to push through it. No, no. Paul says, I boast in my weakness. I've actually learned it. Like I, I can thank God for my weakness because I can see how God is using it to make me more dependent on him so that then his, his strength can be shown through me. I can actually do more for the kingdom of God in my weakness than I could if I was trying to do something in my own strength. And Paul, keep in mind, Paul asked three times for God to remove the thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was, but he asked three times for God to remove it until he learned uh, that God was not going to remove it. God had it there for a reason. And I want you to know it's okay to pray for a removal of the thorn in the flesh, whatever that may be. But if But if you've been praying for a while and it's still there, maybe it's time to stop praying for its removal and start praising him for its presence. And I, and I don't just mean here, I want to put an important caveat on this. You should always be praising God for the presence of a thorn, even if you're still praying for its removal. What I'm saying is don't, don't just pray for the removal of the thorn in the flesh. Uh, maybe you need to begin shifting your focus from praying for its removal to praising God for its presence and shifting your focus uh, pray and, and asking him uh, to, uh, to help you learn to boast in your weakness and to see how he's using it in your life. Because like Paul, your weakness should drive you into dependence upon God. So God keeps his promises despite the impotence of the vessel. And then lastly, God keeps his promises despite the imperfections of his people. So Abraham made numerous poor choices. He sinned. Twice, two times he lied and he said that Sarah was his sister because he was afraid um, that um, when they were in Egypt and then um, when they were in um, Egypt, with King Abimelech in chapter 20 of Genesis chapter 20, he was afraid that uh, they were going to see Sarah and think she was beautiful and steal him from her or steal her from him. And so he lied about her and said that she was his sister. Uh, and then in obviously chapter 16, we talked about uh, Abraham and Sarah's plan that they concocted to have Abraham marry Hagar. Um, but Abraham's imperfections didn't undo God's commitment to his promise. Remember what we said last week, God keeps the terms of his covenant. Abraham did nothing to deserve God's choosing him or God's favor in the first place on his life. From start to finish, God called him and made a covenant with him. God's relationship with Abraham was not, uh, God's relationship with Abraham was not based on Abraham's merit. God is not like man. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's nothing you can do to cause him to turn back on his promise. 
I think a lot of Christians allow this sneaky, destructive belief to creep in that goes something like this. Yes, I believe God is a promise-keeping God, but His promises don't apply to me. I don't deserve them. It's almost like we, we believe the theological truths about God, and we wouldn't deny them. Yes, I know that God keeps His promises, but then we convince ourselves that but that doesn't apply to me. I've somehow disqualified myself. Everybody else qualifies for these promises, but I've disqualified myself for them. And it's possible to have correct theology, but fail to apply it to your own soul. But if you are in Christ, God's promises to you have nothing to do with deserving. Of course, you don't deserve God's promises, but Jesus does. And if you trust in Jesus, then you have his righteousness and God's promises are yours in Christ Jesus. His promise, his promises rest not on imperfect sinners, but on a perfect savior. There are all sorts of reasons to be anxious about God's promises. The impossibility of the circumstances, the impracticality of the timing, the impotence of the vessel, or the imperfections of his people. But despite all these things, God is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. Here's here's what I want you guys to remember uh, as you face uncertain times uh, and uncertain seasons in your life, as you wait on the fulfillment of God's promises. We can lay down the anxiety of the hows and the winds of God's promise when we focus on the who. We can lay down the anxiety of the hows and the winds of God's promises by focusing on the who. And we have an even better reason to believe that God will keep his promise than Abraham did because God has kept an even greater promise that secures all of his promises for us. In verse 6 and 7 of Genesis 21 that we read earlier, Sarah rejoiced with laughter at God's miraculous fulfillment of his promise. This joyful celebration of God bringing about a miraculous child of promise in Isaac foreshadows another joyful celebration of God bringing about a miraculous child of promise in Luke chapter 1. But this isn't just any child of promise. This is the child of promise. The child of promise isn't this child of promise isn't just a blessing to Abraham and Sarah this child of promise is a blessing to all the nations of the earth this is the messiah the one from who came from Abram's Abraham's line uh, this is the child of promise the savior of the world the messiah he was born to the virgin mary and at at his announcement after the angel appeared uh, to mary in luke chapter 1 and told her uh, that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, she rejoiced. Just like Sarah, she sang uh, a song of rejoicing. And here's what she said. Let me read you some of it. Luke 1, it says that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Let's skip down to verse 54 and 55. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. So the promised Savior, the seed of the woman, 
the heir of Abraham, was miraculously born to the Virgin Mary, and his name is Jesus Christ. He came to be a blessing to all nations by dying on the cross for our sin and then rising from the dead three days later so that whoever repents of their sin and trusts in him will be forgiven and will have eternal life. It is through Jesus that we are included into God's family, and it is through Jesus that we become recipients of God's gracious promises, the most important of those promises being salvation. Jesus is a perfect Savior. And my most earnest prayer for you this morning is that if you have not done so yet, that you will come to Him in faith. Uh, I thought about Psalm 34, 22 this week, one of my favorite Psalms. It says, The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. None. It doesn't say some will be condemned. It says none who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And there's no caveats and there's no conditions. None will be condemned who take refuge in Him, period. But pastor, you don't know what I've done. None. But I've fallen back into the same sin over and over and over again. None. But I keep on struggling with doubts. None. If you take refuge in Christ, you will not be condemned, period. His blood was shed for all who trust in Him to pay the due penalty for their sins. So your sins have been paid for no matter what happens. Whether you fall into sin again, whether you struggle with doubt, no matter what you've done in your past, if your trust remains in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then none who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Now, if you do not make the Lord your refuge you will certainly be condemned for your sin. There is only the expectation of God's judgment for those who reject Christ because there is no other sacrifice for sin. There is no other way to be made right with God. There is no other way to remove the guilt of your sin. And the wages of sin is death. It's the penalty that hangs over every single person. But if you trust in Christ, that penalty is removed. The blood of Jesus washes away your guilt. It covers you, but it's the only way to be covered. There is no safety from Him. There is only safety in Him. So I urge you and encourage you to run to Jesus Christ and to make Him your refuge today. And He will keep His promise. All the rest of God's promises are rooted in this one promise of salvation in Christ. They are yours in Him. Jesus has already earned and secured them on our behalf. And just think about some of the precious promises in Scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. If if you ask anything according to my will in prayer, I will do it. My God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, all of these promises, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. What that means is that these promises are given to God's children. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you're united to him. You get to share in those promises. He's earned them for you. So we don't deserve these promises. And this is kind of going back to to that fourth point. God keeps his promises despite the imperfections of his people. 
How is it that God can, can, can keep these promises for people who don't deserve it? It's because it's in Christ that we have the promises. Because Jesus deserves them on our behalf. He earned them for us. And by faith, we share in the promises of God with him. That is an incredible truth. That's an incredible truth. And what is the proper response to this truth this morning? What's the proper response to God's word this morning that God is the promise-keeping God who's able to do the impossible? We can take our cue from Sarah in Genesis 21, verse 6. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. God turns the laughter of disbelief into the laughter of delight. God turns the laughter of disbelief into the laughter of delight. The the way that we respond to God being the promise-keeping God who's able to do the impossible is to rejoice in worship. It's what Sarah did here. It's what Mary did in Luke chapter 1. It's what we will do when we see just how incredibly faithful and good God is to us. As we close, I just want to give you some practical ways that you can do that. You can incorporate rejoicing into your life. One of the things you can do is turn on some praise and worship music in your home and sing like Mary did. The Bible is littered with songs of praise to God all throughout Scripture, from the song of Moses and Exodus after they're delivered from the Egyptians to the song of Deborah in the book of Judges after God delivers Israel from their enemy again. I mean, there's even literally an entire book of songs called the book of Psalms uh, in Scripture. Psalm 59, 16 says, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. One of the things I missed most about gathering together with you guys on Sunday mornings is singing together, singing praises to God. It's one of the best ways we can praise and glorify God. So I'd encourage you to incorporate singing into your quiet time in the mornings. Play a worship song from your phone. Maybe even incorporate singing into your time of family worship uh, in addition to reading the Bible and praying. So turn on some some praise and worship music in your home. Secondly, uh, another way you can practically rejoice is to incorporate rejoicing and praise into your prayer time. Uh, A lot of times um, what will happen in our prayer lives is that it'll turn into like a a grocery list, right? Where we go to God and we just kind of ask for a list of things, right? But I want to encourage you uh, to uh, seek God's face before you seek his hand, okay? So fix your eyes on the God who is able to provide, on the God who is able to forgive, on the God who is able to keep his promises and, and spend time communing with him and knowing him and, and worshiping him first before you go to him. It's great. He wants you to ask him to supply needs. He wants you to ask him uh, for forgiveness and for grace and for strength and help and all of those things. He delights in answering those prayers for his children. Uh, but uh, it's also important that we spend time praising God in prayer and worshiping him. So because like the primary purpose of prayer is not to get stuff, it's to get God. That's why we pray. Uh, So a simple way you can do this um, is pray through Scripture together. Uh, I would encourage you to pray Scripture so you can, you know, open up to, uh, you know, a a short passage. It could be a few verses, maybe even just one verse, and do this rhythm. Uh, I 
I, I was taught this by a guy named Daniel Henderson. Um, he says, he is worthy, we are needy. He is worthy, we are needy. So he is worthy. So approach the scripture and first spend some time uh, going, okay, what, how can I praise and thank God? He is worthy. How can I praise and thank him, uh, specifically in light of what I see in this passage? And then after you've prayed for a couple minutes about that, then go, okay, we are needy. What can I ask God for in light of what I see in this passage? That could be asking him for provision or forgiveness or for help for yourself or for others. So he is worthy, we are needy. Uh, try that rhythm in your prayer life. Uh, and then a third way you can rejoice is to tell somebody. To tell somebody. One of the best ways you can rejoice in the reality that God is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible is to proclaim him to others. Psalm 40 verse 9 says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. Testify to God's goodness. Tell people about our wonderful, promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. Share your story of how God has saved you and been good to you. Share with others how He has kept His promise to send a Savior and invite them to share in that joy with you. It's one of the most natural things when we're saved, when we are rejoicing, when we consider the fact that God is going to keep his promises, that he has kept his promises to save us. I mean, it was the natural reaction for Sarah and for Mary was to speak it out loud and to share with others. So I would encourage you to do the same and share this joy with others. No matter the circumstances outside of you, or the imperfections inside of you, God is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. Uh, We're just going to take a couple minutes to pray now, and I want you to take this time to thank God out loud and express your trust to Him. So we're just going to put a prompt on the screen. just going to take a few moments to do this, but I would encourage you to pray this out loud. Uh, and, And here's what I want you to pray. God, thank you for promising to blank. I trust you to keep your promise. So Whatever that promise is, it could be, God, thank you for promising to save me. God, thank you for promising to supply all my needs. Thank you for promising to forgive me. Whatever promise God brings to mind, it could be multiple promises. Take this time now. God, thank you for promising to blank. I trust you to keep your promises. Let's take a couple of minutes. Let me encourage you to pray out loud uh, where you're sitting. God, thank you for promising to send the Messiah, to send a Savior, to send a a suffering servant, to take upon the sins of the world, to take upon my sin. I thank you for keeping your promise to send Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. I thank you, God, for all of the other promises that we have in Christ Jesus. I thank you that you promised to never leave or forsake us, to supply all of our needs, to hear us when we pray. 
God, you are good. You are the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. God, I pray that you would um, just help us to know you more this week. Help us to see you as the promise-keeping God who keeps all his promises in your word as we read your word this week. Help us to rejoice this week in prayer and in singing songs of worship and in telling others about your goodness and about how you are the God who keeps his promises. We love you, O God. We worship you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.